Greetings, I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. So glad to have you guys here with us live, and of course, happy to have the people that will be checking this out later on the rewatch, and of course, people that can hear this later as an audio-only podcast. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please hit that like button, subscribe, and the bell so you're notified whenever we go live. We're constantly adding new shows and doing cross-streams with other channels. Also, thank you to all the subscribers on YouTube and Twitch and all the audio-only podcast formats you find us on. Thank you to the patrons. Collectively, you are the fuel and the engine that keeps TIR Machine moving along. So if you're enjoying what we do here and you would like to have access to the post-show champagne room, which we will be going to tonight and we'll be opening up the phone lines, so I'm sure you guys are going to have a lot to say about the topic at hand. And we decided not to open up the phone lines on the main show because they're not that crazy. But we will have the phone lines open in the champagne room. That being said, we bring in my homie, my dog, my co-host, the Pascal Robert. Chase Miles, my main mellow, my man. What's going on? Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Do I sound better now? You sound very good. Okay. Because people are complaining about the mic. Uh, sometimes this program does switch me on to a different format. Uh, also, tickets are available wherever you're watching or listening to the show. There should be a link in the descriptions for tickets for the live meet and greet. We'll be doing November 18th in the San Francisco Bay Area for the book launch, which the book is out. It came back from the printer today. I was a teenager. Oh, you got to mail me a, an autographed copy. I, I will definitely do that as soon as I get mine. Um, I sent a picture of it to my mother and her response was, you know, um, I don't know if you were a teenage anarchist. I think it was about six weeks into your birth. That's what she said. That's what my mom said. She said she felt six weeks in. I was already pushing back, and she dropped me off at my grandmother's. And she said she, said she wasn't ready for this. <laughs> that was a quote from my mom today when I showed her the picture of the books. So, are you ready for this topic today, Pascal? Absolutely. I read in chat. I can see it. I read it in your glasses. Stop reading the chat. Yeah, I can see it. I can see you reading the chat. I look at the chat. You can see it already. Since the events of October 7th, Israel has launched an assault on their Palestinian neighbors that some are calling genocidal. Israel and their military financial benefactor, the United States, have used the excuse that Hamas, the militant governing body of the Gaza Strip, is using human shields to garner global sympathies and deflect from their supposed reign of terror. Media narratives have characterized Hamas as a terrorist organization. When you stop to think about it, as a very is a very comic book portrayal of a governing body israel is quote fighting to exist against an incendiary foe uh willing to use the innocent to further their cause of israeli eradication similar rhetoric was used during the attacks on 9 11 by the u.s propaganda machine george w bush said the terrorists hated american freedom that rhetoric launched us into a decades-long battle abroad and legislation at home that resembled McCarthy era witch hunts of dissent. Dissent. Uh, 
dissidents. Sorry, I'm having a hard time reading. Uh, recent MSNBC polls showed bipartisan support for the United States attempting to negotiate a ceasefire in the Middle East. Will the powers that be in Washington listen? We have an election year in 2024, Pascal, and the political climate of the United States is not what it was in 2004, just three years after the events of 9-11, where hawkish tendencies could win you an election. How difficult it is it to organize a mass anti-war movement without falling victim to the cries of anti-Semitism if you oppose the actions of the Israeli government? What lessons did organizers learn from February 15th, 2003, when we saw the largest anti-war protests and nothing happened? We are very lucky today to have Danica from Code Pink, a feminist grassroots organization working to end U.S. warfare and imperialism, support peace and human rights initiatives, and redirect resources into healthcare, education, green jobs, and other, other life-affirming programs. Please welcome coming all the way live from the Windy City, Danica from Code Pink. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you? Welcome from Chi-Town, Danica. Thank you. Glad to, are you, a, are you a house music fan? How, not, okay, I just sort of got into it because my roommate's a DJ. Um, so she's been showing me the ropes, but I otherwise have not had a lot of exposure to house music. I do like it. I don't know a lot about it yet, no but problem. I can get into it. We have a great show talking about the history of it in our uh, Rolodex of shows. Ask Jason, he'll send you the link. Awesome, thank you. So let's let's okay. get into the brass tacks. Go ahead, Pascal. Okay, so let's ask. First off, I know you guys have a big protest coming up November fourth. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Of course, yeah. Uh, Saturday, November fourth. It might be the biggest protest for Palestinian rights in history in the U.S. Um, so there's a lot of anticipation, a lot of excitement. Our demands are to stop U.S. aid to Israel and to lift the siege on Gaza. Um, as some of you might know, Gaza is under a land, air, and sea blockade by Israel. Uh, Israel controls all the food, all the electricity, all the power, all the fuel, everything going in and out of Gaza, and they can restrict it whenever they would like to. Um, so lifting the siege is a big demand of our protest for November 4th. It's sponsored by not only Code Pink, but dozens and dozens of organizations like the People's Forum, Answer Coalition, Palestinian Youth Movement, uh, U.S. Palestinian, Palestinian Community Network, and so many more. Wonderful. Sounds amazing. Is Code Pink an anti-Zionist organization? How does Code Pink view the Zionist project? Yeah, so I think that's safe to say <laughs> Code Pink is a peace organization first. And, you know, we do believe in the saying that you can't have peace without justice. And um, the Zionist project from the outset has had very explicit intent. Um, you know, leaders like the first leaders of Israel, like David Ben-Gurion, have explicitly called uh, and said things like we must replace the Arabs. Um, you know, verbatim. And so the Zionist project has been from the outset, uh, it's, it's, its goals of the ethnic cleansing of Palestine have been apparent. They've been made, uh, you know, they've made the world aware. And so um, that's not what justice looks like. And therefore, that's not what peace looks like. And therefore, it's not something that Code Pink uh, supports. And we support the, um, you know, peace and justice in Palestine. Okay. 
So do you feel that the United States government is facing a backlash that could be potentially disastrous come election time if they don't negotiate a ceasefire? Yeah, I mean, I think we've already started to see President Biden get a little antsy uh, around the election. You know, I think today they had Kamala do this video about how they're doing everything they can to combat Islamophobia in the U.S. Um, and as a Muslim myself, you know, I've heard people in my community talk to them. Nice to meet you. Um, and, uh, you know, I've heard people in my community talking about not voting because of how the Biden administration is approaching the issue of Palestine and um, not talking about revoking any support for Israel. Um, I've heard them talk about, you know, specifically talking about places like Michigan and Ohio, you know, swing states where we do have a very large Muslim community. Um, there have been articles written about Muslims maybe not voting. The polling in Michigan and Ohio is really bad. So I do think the Democratic Party is going to be facing a reckoning pretty soon, if not this ne next election cycle, with their unwavering support for Israel. This question is a little more towards Pascal because he was definitely alive in 9-11. Um, Danica, you just you had let us know earlier your age and you are a year younger than my oldest daughter. <laughs> um so you may not have a vivid memory maybe you you do have heard tales of the treatment of muslim americans uh post 9/11 you've talked about this on the show before pascal in your opinion do you think the us you know as danica pointed out kamala harris trying to say hey we're not islamophobes over here we just hate these dirty terrorists do you think they're trying to do some sort of sleight of hand with oh, absolutely. the posture of the united states since 9-11, which falsely blames Muslims, was directly designed to neutralize Muslims in the Muslim world for resource control in that area coming into the 21st century. And since that charade was used to punish the Muslim world for almost 25 years, spiritually the chickens are coming home to roost for the United States and those who supported that project as believing Muslims we know that. And they're going to suffer greatly consequences, not only in spiritual world realms, but in the physical reality that we are today. They'll be losing by the second in their ability to control the political, geopolitical, economic, and financial mechanisms. And it will be lent farther into the hands of Muslim countries and devout believing people. What they now, call them, now, speaking of Muslim people and, you know, a kind of atrocities all over the world. Uh, do either one of you think the events in Israel and Palestine obfuscate what's happening to the Kurdish people in Syria? Is this conflict more relevant to Americans because of our large Jewish diaspora? The United States always like to abuse the Kurds, use them when they can to sabotage what they can, and abandon them when they need help. I don't have a ton to add to that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, hit the nail on the head. And I, I don't know if it's more relevant because we have a large Jewish diaspora. You know, I think uh, we also have like a very large Palestinian diaspora, especially at least where I am in like in Illinois. We have, I think, the largest Palestinian diaspora community outside of the Middle East. Oh, is it? Yeah, I think it's an it's. Yeah, I think it's in, in Dearborn, Michigan. It's like the most Arab mm -hmm. uh, immigrants. And then here we have the largest diaspora Palestinian population. Hmm. Um, 
Can you explain the role of Palestinian political organizations such as Fatah and Hamas in the context of the conflict and how they differ in their approaches? Yeah. So this is <laughs> um, okay. So Hamas and Fatah are the most like dominant parties in the Palestinian political scene. Um, Hamas was elected in 2007 and has had, held power in Gaza since then. And Fatah rules over the West Bank. Um, there's a lot of diversity in Fatah and it, within the party. Like they had very radical origins. Um, and now sort of the figureheads of the Palestinian Authority that are part of Fatah are not as radical and um, do work with Israel a, a little bit more and have a little bit different talking points. And obviously um, Hamas has a military wing um, that you know routinely launches rockets uh, into Israel. And like um, we all saw on October 7th, um, uh, so Fatah doesn't necessarily have that sort of um, military wing. And they also, Fatah and Hamas like operate in very different political spheres. I mean, not very different, but the, the situation in Gaza is very different from the situation in the West Bank, mm. both under complete occupation by Israel. But um, there's a little bit more freedom of movement in the West Bank and sort of exists in a little bit of a different legal situation than Gaza does. Um, so for that reason, they do have a lot of different tactics, but I will say that both Fatah and Hamas and like sort of all the Palestinian political parties do have like a lot of diversity of thought within them. So it's sort of like hard to generalize as a whole. And also it's hard to refer to either of these parties as like full on governments because most governments of sovereign states control their water, control yeah. their citizens' freedom of movement, control their electricity, uh, and have armies, and neither of these entities do. Do you both think that's a reason why it's so easy? I mean, we can get into the plethora of reasons why uh, they paint these people as terrorists, but regardless of where someone's coming, I'm, I'm, what I'm reading, it's hard I feel like it's hard to read about this stuff because everything around October 7th is the terrorist attacks. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Right. And that that's a very like a loaded term to me because I'm I'm sure the people of Gaza view the IDF as a terrorist force. They definitely have to view uh, America as a terrorist force. So that word I think doesn't really translate the way people would like it to but what you're pointing out here we never really look at these places as as sovereign nations but do you think it's really just the fact that they don't control their resources or do you think it, it has more to do with like propaganda from the west no i think they're, they're captured countries in that because they came into a situation where similar to the black community in america the political uh elites and the political classes work at the beck and call of the forces of the Zionists in the United States in order to live in a poor country and manipulate the political uh, environment, which causes an increase in militancy, which the Zionist project like Netanyahu like to feed off. And he's going to, he's, his project is going to fail within seconds and he's going to pay the spiritual and physical prices for that. Danica? Yeah. I yeah, I think uh, you hit the nail. I don't know. I don't have a ton to add there. I think um, 
I think there might be two di different questions here. Like, mm -hmm. Palestine isn't a sovereign nation, yeah. and so they can't be sovereign governments. And like, it. You did point out sort of the asymmetry where like on around October 7th, they were talking about terrorists versus Israel. And yeah. now they're saying that they're in a full blown war and conflict when there's one side with a fully backed military that has the backing of the most powerful country in the history of the world. Um, and then there's Hamas, which is just non-comparable. Like it's it's so asymmetrical. Let's not forget that Hamas comes out of the Juan Muslimin started by uh, Hassan al-Banna, who was born in 1906, and was uh, the propaganda, the chief and wonderful propagandist of the Ikhwan, who was a major role model, mentor of mine that intellectually I followed, he died before I was, I was born, Said Qutub, really helped clear the air with his book Milestones on how to view the non-believing world that was always trying to prosecute Muslims. I suggest all people who want to understand what's going on in the Muslim world, read Milestones by Sayyid Qutb. It will frame exactly why the non-believing West wants to persecute Muslims and, and how, but the thing is, though Sayyid Qutb creates the intellectual and spiritual force to combat that line by line. And each line you read makes you stronger, whether you're a Muslim or not, in understanding how you must fight the West to bring justice to the world. I mean, that, that, Please don't get the show pulled, Pascal. You already said you're Muslim and you want to fight the West. You want to fight the West rhetorically because we're not trying to get a strike on our channel. No, exactly. You understand what I mean. We're talking metaphys metaphysically speaking here. Yes, just metaphysically. There's no fighting here. It's a fight-free zone. Isn't that right, Code Pink? Of course. There you go. There you go. See? See? No fighting. <laughs> Oh, uh, Netanyahu is catching some flack in in the news, not so much in the U.S. news. I'm reading more foreign news about the way he's allowed Hamas to take control. What is your guys take on that perspective? That he, he used had? it as a plank oh, to, wow. neutral, to neutralize Fatah and, and PLO as a as a causes belly to be able to attack the Palestinians and in the, in the Gaza Strip. And overall, because he feeds, he even supported them monetarily at times because he needs a justification to destroy Palestinians. But they are righteous, they are righteous fighters. It's just that they're desperate for resources to try to, they're like a man, a Muslim man in Rabat. Rabat means that he's getting ready to fight and he's spiritually dedicated. But sometimes that spiritual dedication blinds him to the geopolitics around him because he's in a box preparing to fight like a boxer. But when he gets out, he's just lashing out. But it's not his fault because he's never been given the opportunity to raise the funds and understand the dynamics. And uh, the Zionist project under Netanyahu feeds that to him because he doesn't give them room to get out of that box. Danica? Yeah, I, th I think it's worth saying that, you know, it's beneficial for Israel to have Hamas to point to when... <laughs> Like Pascal said, they did, you know, want to not have Fatah as like sort of the front and center of Palestinian uh, political ideology or like the head of the PA. Like they did uplift Hamas, fund Hamas. They wanted Hamas to win those elections uh, in Gaza. And because it's easier to say, you know, with the 
a group that does have sort of religious fundamentals, especially if they're Muslim, to point to them and say, you know, these are terrorists, um, rather than like having a more secular gr group like Fatah, who um, is secular and doesn't, you know, really like a lot of them are Muslim, but it doesn't, it's not like the core of their political beliefs most necessarily. Um, it's harder for Israel to point to Fatah, who the PLO has, you know, agreed with the two-state solution and, you know, they're sort of the poster child for what Israel wants, like doesn't want their uh, opposition to be because they can't point to them and be like, these are terrorists, we have to fight them, they're attacking Israel, like we have no other way of dealing with them. Um, so it's not just like Fatah and Hamas, like the Israel has put down every single um, nonviolent, every single, you know, they call BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions, anti-Semitic, uh, to neutralize it, to make it, um, you know, if, if that doesn't work, they're killing uh, nonviolent protesters. The Great March of Return was organized yeah. by primarily like nonviolent or, or all nonviolent uh, organizers and protesters in Gaza. Um, so they they can't have that be the forefront of Palestinian resistance. Um, it's it's much more convenient for them to have Hamas as the forefront. Um, how has the international community uh, responded to the Israel-Palestine conflict, and what role do they play in potential solutions to peace negotiations? In your opinion. Yeah. Go ahead, Dina. Um, yeah, they've. You know, there's a few ways to look at it. There's countries like Bahrain that happened today. Uh, there's countries like Bolivia who have cut economic ties with Israel, have sent their ambassadors home, um, and they're, you know, actually taking a stand for Palestinians at the government at the federal level. There's countries like the UK and Canada and the United States that are continuing to fund uh, and give weapons to Israel. Um, but I think it's worth noting that the people of the world are largely standing with the Palestinian people um in mass and you know hopefully we'll see a good demonstration of that on november 4th in dc um but overwhelmingly people are against this ethnic cleansing in palestine and whether or not you know our government isn't really representing our wishes here in the united states well, well we have to understand that the zionist project in israel particularly netanyahu are all going to be facing the consequences of using the west to, to finance their murder because global consciousness and the believing on Muslims are spiritually, not necessarily physically fighting in means that Israel can recognize with their faith that's going to cause them to collapse within a matter of seconds because even non-Muslims are joining in that spiritual and physical battle with not physically fighting, but protesting and sacrificing. And that is a form of battle that gives them legitimacy as good people, as human beings, but also, it, as they process and progress more in doing it, they'll feel liberated from the constraints of the rest of the world and realize that fighting for justice is more important than having a Cadillac and going to Martha's Vineyard every summer. I mean, you say that, but have you ever had a Cadillac? <laughs> Bad jokes. I do. I always do. That being said, we're talking about protest movements. Again, one of the biggest protest movements we saw in history was in 2003 to protest Afghanistan. Nothing happened. Is this protest movement, unlike that protest movement, actually tied into labor power? I will say that protests are largely communicative actions. They're to say this many people 
cared enough to go outside of their houses to march with other people. Um, I think we had sort of a different capacity for organizing that than we did in 2003. Um, obviously, I wasn't around, but that's just when I mean, I was, but you I was around. You were, yeah, you weren't really <laughs> um, at the protest. And Code Pink was founded out of um, these protest movements or right before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of the organizations that are mobilizing for November 4th are. Um, so, you know, we've had two decades to figure out how to absorb all the people who come into the movement. Um, And it's about follow-up and it's about being really consistently organized with people. It's about communicating to them that it's not just being here uh, today today or on November 4th. It's about consistently standing with the Palestinians. And that's not just protest. It's about, um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of the people of Illinois today. Our Senator Dick Durbin, who is not very progressive by any means, is the first senator and only senator to call for a ceasefire. Um, so, you know, it's about constantly, um, and it's about, it's about being persistent um, with our government officials, um, addressing weapons companies that are profit, profiting off of this. So I think we have a little bit of different capacity for absorbing people who want to be part of the movement than we did in 2003. You know, what's also fascinating. The Palestinians and the Palestinian movement are merging with the Francophone Pan-Africanism, be the law, under the guise of Sirta Yusuf in the Quran, to fight all of these demonic forces in Israel and also challenge the hegemony of European countries that have been extracting. So it's really a not so much a spiritual and religious battle, it is on a major front, but also an anti-imperialist battle in terms of the Western world, also. In what way? Because a lot of these countries that have been oppressing Francophone African states also support Israel, and now the Pan-African and the Palestinian Project, again, under this chapter in the Quran called Surah Yusuf, are binding to challenge all that have oppressed them since the time of the Prophet Muhammad. Because there's so many Muslims in Africa that, that, that feel the pain of the Palestinians. But do those Muslims in Africa have any sort of real political power that would push the United States? Well, they're, they're challenging their states, and they're also fighting for Palestine as well. Fighting rhetorically or actually... No, protest as well, because they already protest their states. I mean, protest is one thing, but is the protest going to be enough... To, well, that's you know, and are and are those countries involved in the fight? They're involved because they demand to be. But we have to understand that all things are in the hands of the Almighty Allah Azawajal, and we have to give them the the time to organize their own affairs before they do something rash, because they're still suffering to develop out of the binds of imperialism. But they still will do what they can to the best of their ability to support the Palestinians in this kind of Palestinian Pan African. Uh, 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 process again under this very important chapter in the Quran Surah Yusuf. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danica, how? Uh, sorry, would you view the events of October seventh as an obstacle to Palestinian statehood, and how can Palestinian people shake off generations of Western, mostly U.S. propaganda aimed at depicting them as religious zealots and terrorists? Um, I think October seventh isn't necessarily a obstacle to Palestinian statehood. I think the one and only obstacle to Palestinian statehood is the occupation of Palestine. Um, The 
Zionist project has created the largest refugee population in the world. One in three refugees in the world are Palestinian. Wow. Um, and so I think that's the only obstacle to Palestinian statehood. It's Israel is, um, as we know, committing a brutal genocide in, in Gaza, where there are two million Palestinians. And in the West Bank, they are encouraging settlers to move there. They're closing in on Palestinian villages in the West Bank. Um, they are arming settlers with rifles, um, you know, since October, uh, sorry, October 7th. Um, they've been constantly encroaching on land, the land that is um, supposed internationally recognized as Palestine in the West Bank has gotten smaller and smaller because of Israel's encroachment on Palestinian land. Um, so as long as Israel continues to do that, that is going to be the biggest obstacle for Palestinian statehood. Um, and when it comes to Palestinian people, I, I don't think it's their, I don't think it's a Palestinian's uh, role to shake off the propaganda aimed at them, mm -hmm. um, depicting them as, as terrorists. Like that's not necessarily their responsibility, I don't think. It's our responsibility to be smarter about consuming media and speaking out when we need to, um, and actually sort of spending a lot of time and having a lot of hard conversations with people who have consumed this propaganda. But I don't think it's necessarily their job to shake off generations of propaganda that's been aimed at them. How do you shake off generations of propaganda? Um, I'm a 46-year-old American that grew up watching tons of Cold War television and movies that, um, you know, thanks to one of my favorite movie production companies, Canon Films, made tons of anti-Palestinian uh, propaganda with the, you know, Chuck Norris kind of comes to be a, more of a household name as a star, um, being an anti-terrorist force in the Delta Force movies. So even though that might be pop culture related, people don't think it's serious. Most people don't watch the news. Most people don't read the back page of, of the newspaper where the world affairs stuff is, right? All the good stuff's in the middle. So, and again, I'm not disagreeing with what you said. How do you cut through that anti, that, that anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim noise when everyone that speaks, even if you're speaking critical of Israel, on a major news network has to condemn the terrorist attacks of Hamas. Um, we have a friend that works at a, a leftist, a leftist magazine. We won't say which one. And uh, was showing us the cancellation emails where people were saying, I no longer want to subscribe to this magazine because you guys haven't condemned Hamas for, for their actions. So I, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I'm just asking, it's easy to say, eh, you should watch better stuff, but <laughs> stuff is everywhere. So how do you cut through that, that level of noise? Yeah. I mean, I think the left needs to get better at like funding independent media for sure. And you said, I agree with you a hundred percent. I mean, you said not everyone watches the news. And I went, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> because if you're watching CNN, they they are the ones that started that, um, you know, false narrative about Hamas beheading babies that got regurgitated in a Chicago city council meeting and regurgitated across a hundred different kinds of mainstream media platforms. 
Um, and then they retracted it, but they didn't delete their initial comment. So it is still, to this day, it's been three weeks, still regurgitating this proven false. Even I, the IDF said, we didn't see that. Even Israel is saying, we didn't see that. Yeah. And CNN just gets to say whatever they want. So I do think a big part of it is like the left needs to get better at funding independent, independent media that's telling the truth and get better at circulating it for sure. I mean, look, I was I was shocked seeing some of those those emails our, our friend showed us. And again, I won't say the name of the publication, but uh, I don't know if I was so much shocked at the readership. But in everything that I've again, everything I've been seeing from the West, that's even critical of Israel. Um, you first have to call Hamas a terrorist organization, first and foremost. And then second of all, you have to condemn the attacks of October 7th. Um, and now in mainstream media, we're seeing a narrative of October 7th is Israel's uh, September 11th, and more uh, Jews uh, died on October 7th, or not as this has been the most amount of Jews that's died since the Holocaust, which is another narrative that gets uh, brought yeah. up uh, often. So, again, how do you cut through that level of noise? Um, I even hear it. I live here in Mexico now, and even in casual conversations with people that I would say are at best apolitical, even they're talking about, well, you know, they killed babies. Those uh, those terrorists killed some babies. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about, you know, just conversations with people, and I think um, there are a few people who have done it well going on. Uh, mainstream media platforms like Kassam Zamlat, who's uh, from the Palestinian Authority. I think he's just done a great job being like, I'm not going to, I'm not talking about that. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Because I think, but when you're just discussing with people and they bring up these narratives, I feel like all you really need to say, and I think, you know, reasonable people, if you're talking to them and they are well-meaning, you're going to talk to people that aren't, that actually don't want to have this that conversation with you. Um, that aren't interested in like being open, um, but that's another thing. If you're talking to someone who's genuinely like, I heard that Hamas is beheading babies, and I, I don't support that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they can say I'm not a fan of that. Um, and you can say, well, first of all, CNN did retract that, and then also is that what is happening right now is that 7,000, I think the new numbers, 8,000 or 9,000. Palestinian civilians have been murdered. They've been slaughtered in indiscriminate bombings nonstop since October 7th. They've bombed hospitals. They've bombed refugee camps. One refugee camp in Gaza three times in 24 hours in mm -hmm. yesterday. Hospitals, churches, mosques. Is that is that a justification for any of that? Like, can I'm, we care about uh, people at the same time? And I think most people's answer is yes. But Maybe it's too much faith in that's, that's where I lose my faith, because I think most people need oversimplified narratives of good and bad. Yeah, that's true. And, and there's a lot of historical context that goes into this. And it's easy for a lot of people to hand wave and go, it's a religious thing. This has been going oh. That's another one too. I mean, what is what is your take if someone was to say, "Oh, that's just a religious thing that's been going on for centuries." This, that's how these people are, because there are a, a good amount of Americans that are are somewhat dismissive of what's going on, because to them, it's like, isn't this what happens there all the time? That's true, and yeah, I 
we just we discussed this on a different interview at Code Pink today um, with Humanity Rising, where we talk about like people. It's very convenient for people to ignore that there are so many Palestinian Christians. I mean, they are a majority Muslim, but um, you know, there's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in in Jerusalem. There's Bethlehem, Nazareth, Ramallah is a is a mostly Christian city in the West Bank. So there's so many Palestinian Christians um, and Palestine before 1948, before the Nakba, um, before Israel, um, you know, before Zionist militias started um, killing Palestinians and taking them out of their houses. You know, Jewish people, Christians and Muslims lived in Palestine uh, with not nearly as many issues as exist today. So it has nothing to do with religion really at all it has everything to do with settler colonialism Ooh. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. i wish i had a sound of just woke black people snapping does that happen when you talk often in chicago just... uh i don't i don't talk often in chicago but are you I racist Jason, wait, did we lose Pascal? We lost, he's not going to save you now. Yeah, we lost Pascal. Yeah. Uh, the deep state got him, as we say on the show. We're coming for you, nigga. So the deep state, deep state got him. <laughs> they didn't warn you about coming on this show at Code Pink that uh, the guys at TI are a little wacky. I'm having a great time. So okay. see, you, which... were, you were afraid you wouldn't. <laughs> there you go, doubting us. Uh, the issue of settlements in the West Bank is a contentious one. How do you contextualize the Palestinian perspective of, of Israeli settlements and avoid the anti-Semitic tag at the same time? I think just explaining how settlements work in simple terms is the most useful. You have people who... Um, you know, my my coworker Noor, who's Palestinian, she's our Palestine director at Code Pink. She, her family is originally from uh, a village in the West Bank, and you know, her family has lived there for a very, 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 very long time, pre 1948. And um, she was telling the story earlier today about how her family, who's still there, um, is there are two settlements on either side of the village. And it's not like places like uh, Hebron or, or different um, cities in, in the West Bank where settlements have like completely overtaken because um, that has happened where settlements just, they start on like, like Nuru's village, start on either side, one, maybe two, maybe three settlements in the perimeter of a Palestinian village. They get bigger and bigger and bigger because Israel is encouraging settlers to move into the West Bank. So, of course, they need places to live. So their settlements get bigger and bigger and bigger until they've fully encroached on Palestinian land. The IDF then goes in, uh, ethnically cleanses these villages, tells Palestinians to get out, uh, uses military force, has um, their they make Palestinians watch their house be demolished if they haven't demolished it themselves. Oof. So they get orders to move. This happens uh, also in Jerusalem, not just the West Bank. Um, so I think if you explain it in pretty clear terms, if you were living in your house and someone, uh, you know, popped up next to you and they said, I'm going to live here. And also I need your house now. 
I think people might have a pretty clear understanding that that's not okay. Um, and it's not anti-Semitic to say so. How is the U.S. covered up so well what goes on when it comes to these settlements? Because, again, as some people have said in the chat, and I've definitely, you know, we've had in our private TIR chats, the idea that everything started on October 7th is definitely a false narrative, right? This goes back a ways. Um, it's almost like we forgot what happened just in 2018. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Go ahead, please. I mean, the uh, imperial propaganda machine is a is a strong one, certainly. So, um, you know, another thing we have is just um, the Zionist lobby in the U.S. is extremely powerful. Um, they spend a lot of time and resources on Capitol Hill. Uh, they donate to a lot of politicians. They spend a lot of time in their offices um, where we've seen it become, you know, political suicide to talk about Palestine, um, where, you know, it's people are fired from their jobs over it. So there is sort of an icing out of um, talking about Palestinian rights in the U.S. So that that definitely contributes to keeping Israel's crimes a secret. But what I have noticed since October 7th is a lot more just regular people posting about this, um, so even celebrities who have come out in support of a ceasefire because social media is just, you know, God bless the Palestinians in Gaza who under such dire circumstances are committed to pleading with the American people in English, even though it's not their first language, so we can hear them and we can understand what they're going through, posting it on social media through through internet black blackouts, through uh, electricity blackouts to tell us what's happening there. And I think there's been such a barrage of that information that it's just been completely impossible to ignore. And then you have Israel just claiming, like they did yesterday, that yes, we did bomb, we did bomb the refugee camp. I think that's an insane sentence to hear and an insane um, sentence to have the perpetrators just admit to on the news. It's it's also uh, interesting that uh, I was reading that the House Speaker Jean Saint Pierre, yeah. Yeah. French, black woman, Pascal wrote a whole uh, Black Agenda Report article on her. You guys definitely look that up again wherever you're watching the show or listening. There's a link in the description to Pascal's uh, writings in Black Agenda Report. Um, we also have a video essay that we did of, of that uh, piece about Jean St. Pierre um, in our video essay playlist. But she was very against the U.S. state and their occupation or their support for the occupation in Gaza. I saw her basically call someone anti-Semitic during a press conference for questioning Israeli bombing. Um, what do you, what is your take on that? Is it just as simple as well? She might have been a decent person, but she got captured when she got to the the, the dark side of the Democratic Party. Was that her goal all along? And she was just saying what was hot amongst her leftist friends to go up the ranks. Yeah, I mean, there's cases of sellouts all the time. Um, and I think that's 
that's very common, but also I think I've found a lot of optimism and there's been also a lot of resignations um, of like Hill staffers and other high profile officials over this issue. Um, you know, people who work for these congressional offices writing uh, letters saying that they'll quit if their boss doesn't support a ceasefire. So, you know, there's also the opposite end of that spectrum. But I, I definitely think, you know, she has very clearly changed her tune on this issue. And um, it but it also is her job to, you know, as as the press secretary to regurgitate the views of the Biden administration that is very anti-Palestinian in the first place. I mean, you would assume that they would have, you know, done some background work on her. I mean, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm su- yeah, I'm surprised they they didn't. <laughs> they you didn't want to check a Facebook page their uh, Biden administration. Nothing. Control F Palestine. That's all. Right. Yeah, just you know, didn't look at the LinkedIn profile at all. Um, <laughs> I really want to see the hiring process at, uh, <laughs> at the White House. Uh the bombing campaign of Israel will of course displace more innocent people. Can you discuss the experiences of Palestinian refugees and their descendants and the ongoing impact of displacement uh, of the Palestinian people? Yeah, well, I mean, in Gaza, most most people in Gaza have um, already been displaced to Gaza from where their families are originally from in in 1948 Palestine. Um, And now, you know, it was closer to October 7th, probably like a week weekend, I think, where Israel said, if you're in northern Gaza, you have to leave. You have to go south. So they're displaced again. And then they get displaced again and again every time Israel issues an evacuation notice or they're killed. Right. So um, the status of refugees in Gaza is very unique, uh, especially because, you know, most most of the people in Gaza are children. A lot of them were born there, have never been outside Gaza. Um, and now a lot of them do not, thousands of them do not have the opportunity to ever do so. Um, so it's this combination of grief in Gaza where they, the older people are mourning for their home in 1948 Palestine. They miss their family in the West Bank that they can't see because whole families have been separated by the occupation. Um, it's a grief of missing their family. It's a, it's an actual grief of like their families have been murdered in Gaza over the last four weeks um, or in the last 20 years. And so in Gaza, it's like these layers. And then in the West Bank, um, there are Palestinian families who have lived in their villages forever or there are refugee camps like Palestinians are living in ref- refugee camps in their own country. Mm. Um, or they're in South Lebanon, or if they're or they're in, they've been displaced to Jordan. Um, so it's just a lot of layers, and like it's it's never ending. It doesn't stop, and it's not just you know Gaza is being bombarded and ethnically cleansed, and in the West Bank, um, they're arming settlers with uh, with rifles and further encroaching on land and bulldozing houses. So it's just you know so many layers of grief and despair and despite all of that are like palestinians are the most optimistic people for their cause in the world jesus i mean you have to be the the way you just kind of explain that is the ceasefire the best the biden administration is going to do 
if they even do it they've they've called ceasefire like a a repugnant word to talk about the current situation because israel's defending itself from terrorists so i am not super they're calling it a humanitarian pause now to give them an out to saying ceasefire um but they an article did come out today i'm not sure where where they sort of described how they envisioned this humanitarian pause where they would want israel to stop bombing for a sec so they can get aid in so once the aid's in then israel can continue bombing gaza is essentially what they mean by that um and no no a ceasefire is not the best they can do or i don't know if they will do that i don't know if they if the biden administration will call for a ceasefire um but you know code pink's demands as they've always been is is the israeli military could not keep occupying Palestine and um, encroaching on more Palestinian land without the support of the United States. They just wouldn't be able to do what they're doing now. Um, pretty a majority of the bombs they've dropped on Gaza, uh, you know, they, the bomb that they dropped on the refugee camp was made by Boeing. And a lot of the bombs that they use are made by Boeing here in the US. So again, with these protest movements that we're talking about, and when I ask, is it kind of working with any unions um are you guys working with uh, longshoremen's union to make sure stuff doesn't get shipped are you working with the uaw to say hey if this doesn't happen we're shutting down production all along the western seaboard i will say that are you, you not know, allowed to say <laughs> Am I- yeah. palestinians have called on labor unions um to do exactly what you just said um I think it's been a bigger fight within the larger anti-war movement to get labor unions involved and like a lot of like individual unionists are very anti-imperialist like just the ones I've met um, because they recognize as poor people struggle and working people struggle in the U.S. is directly tied to poor and working people struggle abroad. I think a lot of them do recognize that and are able to speak on it, but their union as a whole, you know, sort of shies away from these sort of issues. So that is a problem that we've encountered. Um, not just on Palestine, but also, um, you know, with situations like um, the war in Yemen and other and other. Um, a lot of it has to do with a lot of weapons manufacturers are unionized. Mm-hmm. So you run into unionized people who whose jobs sort of rely on the weapons industry, and so. I think the U.S. has like really there's this story about Lockheed Martin that um, Lockheed Martin's the world's largest um, weapons manufacturer. And there was a situation where they knew that their employees were unionized, unionizing. So they supported the weaker union over the stronger union. And the stronger union had sort of like a little bit more left leaning values than the other one did. So um, there's a lot of uh, history of like labor of uh corporations knowing that their people might be um you know more radical than than they are and so there's just a lot of like awareness within the weapons industry um that they benefit a lot from um the occupation of palestine like companies like boeing and lockheed martin so you're saying that it's hard to organize when you have that situation Hmm. um i mean that's kind of I would think what a movement would need, right? If everybody goes, look, we're not making any bombs. 
Bless you. Thank you. Um, I do want to read a few super chats we have that pertain to you and your organization before we go. Uh, I'm sure you can see it on the screen. Uh, this is from Jeppelman, Jeppel's Perman, Jell Perman. I always keep code pink in mind every time January 6th apologists cry when violent Fuchstitz get prison time. Code pink gets arrested and they hurt no one. Is that how you feel, Danica? You've hurt no one? I've hurt no one, I think. It's oh. somebody in the balls. <laughs> Never one cop. No, not that I know of. Not that you know of when those legs go flailing and still. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> and here's his same same super or different super chat. Uh why are all the code pink gals so freaking hot every time they heckle war criminals or crash a congressional hearing? My first thought is hubba hubba. I'll let Medea Benjamin know. Let Medea Benjamin know. Um <laughs> Is that is that what the inbox looks like on the code pink? Website? No. One time <laughs> one time I did an interview with um Dr. Cornell West and they introduced me on the show as the director of Code Pink and someone in the chat was like Cornell's assistant is so gorgeous. And I was like, what the? F- what are we doing here, man? I'm like, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. We're talking about the working class. <laughs> all the things that I would say, I'll save for the champagne room behind the paywall. <laughs> paywall. That being said, can you tell us again before we go? Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so sorry that the deep state uh, got my co-host. I don't know what happened. He literally just disappeared out of nowhere. Uh, He got caught up in some weird Max Headroom universe on his screen, and then he just disappeared. But again, can you tell us what's going down on November 4th and how anyone listening right now can get involved? Yeah, go to codepink.org, go to our events page. Um, I think the, yeah, it's codepink.org forward slash Palestine DC 23. You can RSVP, you can join us in DC. um, Or if you, you know, sign any Code Pink petitions, you'll be getting emails from us on how to stay involved. So please follow Code Pink. Please follow, you know, the People's Forum, Palestinian Youth Movement, Alauda. American Muslim Alliance, uh, USPCN, any Palestinian org, um, you know, please support their work and get involved. And wherever you are watching or listening to the show, there are links in the description to Code Pink's website where you can get involved. And thank you, Danica, for taking the time to hang out with me. Um, I will, I will bid you adieu. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with me today and my co-host who got disappeared by the deep state. My goodness, what happened? I don't know if he'll be joining us in the champagne room, but in the champagne room, I'll be opening up the phone lines. Um, I, w- 
I almost gave out the phone number like an idiot. So if you are a patron, the link is already up. If you're not a patron, go become one. Don't be different. Don't be like everyone else that says no. For as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year, you can join us in the champagne room for all champagne room shenanigans and serious conversations like the one we're going to have as soon as I hang this show up and go in there and open up the phone lines. Once again, thank you, Danica. And also, fat, fat, fat shout out. I'll, I'll give you guys a little bit of truth about this show. We initially had someone else planned for this show who didn't get back to us for some time. Then we started trying to scramble for some people. They were all busy. And friend of show, great friend in real life, who does a lot of scheduling for Ralph Nader, uh, Hannah Feldman hit me up randomly. I told her about my dilemma, and she connected me with the wonderful people at Code Pink. They responded right away, and we're down to come on. This is a revolution. So once again, thank you, Code Pink. Shout out to Hannah Feldman for making sure we could do this. And on that note, we are out. <laughs>